0: welcome to the today's market explained podcast hosted by brian castle brian has been a financial advisor for over 35 years and is the founder of four-star wealth in chicago he will be sharing the most important investment opportunities out there in ways that are easy to understand and hopefully even easier for you to benefit from Brian will also be interviewing subject matter experts who can give insights into new and exciting investment opportunities. To see all the best video highlights from every episode, please follow at Today's Market Explained on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. Now, on to the episode. Hey,
1: everybody. Welcome back to Today's Market Explained, a four-star podcast. This is our uh, bi-monthly series where we cover the markets and what's going on in the financial world. And uh, I'm Brian Castle, your host. I've got Chris Reardon, uh, my uh, my co-conspirator or uh, co-host, as it were, on this podcast. Chris, uh, welcome uh, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. Good afternoon to everyone and uh, glad to be on the podcast. And everybody knows, uh, those of you who don't, Chris is Director of Development for 4Star. He handles all things in portfolios, manages our investment management operation as well and development and recruiting. And so... Chris is an invaluable member of the team with great insights on the investing world. And, and so we're proud to have him. And uh, I'm your uh, CEO and founder of Four Star. And I'm an advisor to uh, CEOs as well, uh, philanthropic advisor, um, and also uh, insiders as well. I'm chief dad to my sons, Quinn and Evan, and uh, husband to the amazing Trippi. So if you like what we're doing and what you're hearing, please give us a five out of five. Uh, this is uh, how we get uh, uh, noted by other organizations. We're getting great credibility with this show, and we'd love to continue that. So uh, thanks, everybody. Today, uh, we will start out with our traditional program. We'll talk about the markets. We'll talk about the general economy and what's going on. And then we'll talk in general about things that we see out there that matter, that we think it's important that people know. So uh, Chris Bearden, um, you've done the study in the markets. And uh, what does it look like out there right now? on the financial markets based on all the different asset classes that we track
2: yep so uh international equities is still leading the way um it's still by far in the number one position was 248 points um not much change it lost one point from the last podcast so it's been relatively stable in that number one position um the next three positions we've had a little bit of a shakeup. actually domestic equities uh, bumped up two positions, uh, so it was in the fourth position, now it's in the number two position. Uh, it gained 22 points from the last podcast, uh, and it's now sitting at 204 tally points uh, in the number two position. So uh big movement there from domestic equities. Uh, commodities moved down from the second position to the third position, uh, and it lost 10 points from the last podcast, and it's at 199 now, so just below that 200 mark. Uh, and cash dropped from the third position to the fourth position. Uh, it's been relatively stable. So most of the moving has either been done by domestic equities or in commodities is is moving towards it. Um, so it's not been cash moving upwards necessarily, but just staying stable. Um, it lost one point from the last podcast. It's at 194 in that fourth position. So, uh, And then fixed income is still in the fifth position. Uh, it's at 123 and it lost seven points from the last podcast and currencies are still in the, the sixth and last position, uh, minus three points from the last podcast at 119. So um, the big news, I would say, is that obviously the movement from domestic equities upwards from the last podcast, and commodities uh, slowly starting to fade a little bit moving um, yeah. to the number three position.
1: Yeah, and so, Chris, that's really the big story. Now, the big story with domestic equities moving up is primarily large-cap technology, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, and, and really, you know, if you drill down, semiconductors have been the the, the top news story. Uh, but I mean, Google, Microsoft, a lot of those uh, other tech companies have benefited as well, even Apple. Uh, but mostly it's been driven just by by AI. You know, a lot of people, uh, the semiconductors had a huge run up uh, with the uh, Bitcoin and and mining. Uh, a lot of people had to go and buy the uh, graphics cards because that was the most powerful part of the computer. That was the best way to mine Bitcoin, when Bitcoin was, you know, 50,000 a coin, things like that. Uh, well, you know, now people are, I think, predicting that AI is going to do the same thing for semiconductors, that we're going to see this new resurgence, this new boom. I think a lot of people are piling in uh, to hopefully get ahead of everyone. So we've seen um, the last couple of weeks, really, a lot of movement. The um, video came out with great earnings last week was up about 20, 30 uh, percent.
1: So a lot of movement in that, that tax sector yeah so that stock was up big too and that was uh really an interesting move it's a it's a massive capitalization stock it's one of those giant caps and when that earnings number came out it went up 25 percent in a day i don't think we've ever seen a massive cap stock go up 25 percent from that level to another higher level in a day
2: yeah it was a very 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 big move um and like you said brian when you factor in how what essentially it's a mega cap you factor in the size of the company and that big of a move um you know i think it shows a you know the breadth and and i think also um it shows that a lot of people i think are anticipating it to go higher i think you almost have like a run uh driving that stock upwards
1: yes well and we talk about large cap mid cap small cap and then giant cap and i now use the term massive cap companies uh used there was a time when a small cap company was a, a half a billion or less. And then a mid cap company was maybe up to 2 billion and anything north of 2 billion with a large cap. Now you really need to be a hundred million or a hundred billion to be a large cap. And then the 500 billion is a giant cap. And some of these stocks are hitting trillion dollar market values like Apple. And so uh, all, all the all the capitalization numbers have changed. So NVIDIA is a massive cap and they're one of the largest uh, companies like Apple and and others like that. So uh, but to see a, a, a company of that massive size to go up even more massively is really quite unusual and quite striking. So they really own the AI market now, the artificial intelligence market, Chris, don't they? And in many ways, they've got a, a, a premium position in all the areas that they're in.
2: Yeah, I mean, they're, they're definitely one of the premium uh, graphics card um, or just semiconductor uh, manufacturers. You have AMD, you do have some other big players in that space. I think um, NVIDIA gets a little bit of a premium, um, or at least has as of late. Uh, but um, you know, there's about two or three players in that space. NVIDIA, I
1: believe, is the biggest. I mean, it's obviously the front runner right now. Yes. Well, and, and uh, so we had a huge move in domestic equities, but most of that move came out of the fixed income in the fifth position and then commodities, which went down to the third position. So commodities have had a big run again, and they were back up to number one for a period of time. Now they're fading again. But there's still certain commodities are moving well. Gold hit new highs. Now gold had a big move down, and that could be part of uh, what 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 you know some of the positions that came out of the gold, the tally scores that came out of the uh, you know, commodities in general. Uh, but you know the story really of domestic equities is mostly those technology names. But Chris, isn't the market pretty thin though? Even though we're seeing a big move in domestic equity.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you know when people think of the market, I think everyone kind of correlates it to the S and P five hundred is, is the most mm-hmm. common, um, and I think a lot of people don't realize the S and P five hundred is is really a very, in many ways, a momentum uh, index, and it's heavily, it's more weighted towards these mega caps, so the Apples, um, Amazon's, um, even Nvidia, Microsoft. So when we have that move in technology, and we saw this going back um, in twenty twenty one. Um, we have a couple names that are really driving the S&P up. Uh, when you really look at it, you know, look at the equal weight 500, the S&P equal weight 500, um, you know, you're getting more and more of a divergence there because it's just a handful of names that are really good driving uh, the S&P 500. So, um, you know, like last week was a great example. I think the S&P 500 was up. Like 0.32%, uh, where the Russell 1000 Value, which is a common index for kind of more value-oriented stocks or dividend-paying stocks, I guess, uh, was down uh, 1.25% roughly. So a big gap there, and that that shows that um, you know maybe a few names like Nvidia last week, AMD, some of these semiconductor names that are you know mega caps that are trillion-dollar companies uh, are really hijacking, if you will, the S&P 500 and making it seem like it's doing much better. I want it's only a couple companies.
1: Well, and Chris, we do a weekly call with our advisors, and we have some guest speakers. A recent guest speaker was uh, Brandon Bischoff at uh, Canterbury, and uh, their commentary and their analysis is that uh, this market is so thin, with uh, tech really dominating everything, and then the some of the basic indexes are barely up for the year at all. Uh, that it's the thinnest market since 1999 the tech rally of 1999 and anybody who was around back then remembers that the nasdaq was up 80 percent in that year yet the average stock in the nasdaq was down two percent so that means the giant massive cap type companies dominated everything and that's the same thing that's going on right now so while the while the technology benchmarks are up in the mid-teens uh we've got other indices that are up single digit and uh the dow i think is up just 1% one or two percent so it's not up very much so it's an up year but it's a it's a rich and a poor type market where uh if you're in technology it did well and if you're not in technology you're just up a little bit but you know it's um you know after the big destruction and value of 2022 a lot of investors are still way behind the beginning of 2022 unless of course they overly weighted in technology and they probably would have taken more risk than they should have uh, it would have worked, uh, luckily, if they did, but it could have gone the other way because technology was down in the mid-40s uh, last year, 40%. So it was really, really bad.
2: Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, I think technology really got hit hard last year. You know, I think the the um, kind of upside we've seen to t- technology this year is a lot of these big tech companies are shedding a lot of, um, you know, employee overhead. They're getting rid of a lot of these extra amenities, trimming down office space. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, the market, the, the investors look at that and say, all right, they're becoming more cost conscious or conscious. Um, and, you know, with that, you know, we're hoping that it's going to drive more to the bottom line. Uh, so I think we're seeing that plus obviously like we talked about this kind of AI resurgence uh, that's helping tech. but you know I think it's important to note, you know there still is it's a volatile market both up and down now. So um, doesn't mean that tech's gonna run away for the rest of the year? Does not you know it's certainly working right now, but like I said there's there's also I think many headwinds um, and
1: a lot of volatility right now in the market too. All right. Warren Buffett, thanks for going into a recession. Many other major strategists feel we're going into recession. Uh, All the metrics, the leading indicators uh, that we're seeing now have always pointed to recession. So it's uh, pretty clear we're probably either in one or going into one. Question of course is how bad does it get? Uh, China is uh, slowing in in many areas. We're gonna talk more on this uh, broadcast about China, Uh, but by consumer discretionary is slowing down a little bit in general because of the slowdown in China, Chris.
2: Yep. Yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of consumer discretionary stocks, especially the larger stocks that have exposure to the Chinese markets, um, you know, they've taken a hit. And you know, whether it's it's, it's not necessarily sales being bad, it's just the presumption that uh, this slowdown is going to um, maybe not have the effect that I think a lot of people expected. Um, you know, a great example is casino stocks. You have Macau over there. That's a lot of revenue that gets generated. Uh, so you know when you had this reopening story happen, you had a lot of casino stocks that popped thirty uh, percent. Maybe now they're starting to come back a little bit, uh, as maybe the realization that this this opening isn't as strong as that was as strong um,
1: as was originally anticipated. Yeah, in fact, it's pulling pulling back the opposite way. So we'll cover that in a little bit, um, a little more on the markets. Um, Morgan Stanley, uh, the big firm. Uh, is uh, now seeing its CEO after about 15 years at the helm is leaving and uh, Morgan Stanley had carved out a position in the industry focusing on wealth management they acquired Smith Barney and a number of other firms so they had a lot of financial advisors and worked on getting strong margins from that business and Goldman Sachs as well they made a foray into wealth management acquiring United Capital uh, but they've been dismantling United Capital as it didn't pair out to be exactly as they wanted. And and Morgan Stanley, however growing they are in wealth management, that's a business we know very well. We we manage a wealth management growth operation. The morale isn't great, unfortunately, at the big wirehouses uh, as folks look toward investor choice and advisor choice. So that's a little more limited at firms like Morgan and Goldman. It's more about what the firm wants than what the advisor wants. So while they have done well in the wealth management space margin-wise, uh, they still are seeing people leave uh, at those firms. So it's kind of a temporary short-term gain for them, although Gorman is leaving at a high point for Morgan. Uh, but we still see those trends in the wealth management industry where advisors are going to, in the independent space, clients are following them. So uh mini growth story for Morgan Stanley in the short run. Uh, the overall story is, Clients and advisors leaving to the independent channel uh, and the insurance advisor channel. So that's an interesting trend, Chris. Although uh, uh, James Gorman gets to leave in a high point.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, you've certainly seen, uh, for those that have been in the investment advisory space, you've seen the flows have mostly moved out of the wirehouses, uh, trend wise, more to that independent. Uh, independent broker, dealer, even space in general. Um, So, I mean, that's been the trend probably going on, you know, five to 10 years now. Um, You know, the the wirehouses just aren't what they used to be in many ways. And I think with the the dawn of some of the fintech capabilities, uh, you've seen a lot of uh, more flexibility from other firms and capabilities that have been out there.
1: So absolutely. Well, and so that's the wealth management market talking a little bit about the real estate market. Revenues have slowed down dramatically in real estate brokerage. Uh, this time last year, uh, the numbers were astronomical and we had an extremely strong growth market in real estate up until about May, June of last year, 2022. Then things started to uh, unravel a little bit and that's uh, gone stronger and stronger as the year has gone on. So a good example is in the major cities, uh, real estate brokerage revenue is down 34% year over year. In current months, and then now down 50% for the year. So things are pretty rough in the real estate investment market. Um, Although, ironically, we saw prices still heading upwards, Chris, didn't we? A little bit.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, we still have supply and demand uh, going on out there. So, you know, prices continue to remain steady, if not moving upwards. Um, So, you know, the housing market, I don't think, I think it's in a really kind of funky place. You're seeing, you know the the volume declined significantly, which is be expected. Uh, but with that decline in volume, uh, that supply is is constricting so much that uh, and demand is still there that we're just seeing a, a stabilization in price, even with interest rates. You know, at six seven percent.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So that's really slowing down purchases of, of properties, but because there's such little inventory, prices are still going up. So the supply and demand curves are still shifting you know, in, in tandem the same way. So uh, we're not seeing a huge decline in price in real estate, maybe in some of the northern cities where they've got high taxes and uh, people are fleeing to uh, more tax-favored, uh, investor-favored states like you know, Florida, um, you know, Texas, uh, Arizona, places like that. Um, so we're also seeing a home-building boom in America overall. It's not happening really in those major cities we talked about, New York, LA, Chicago, or San Francisco, but it's happening in places like Texas, like Florida, like Arizona, Alabama, and those areas along the coast, the coastal cities in Georgia. So um, we're seeing big, strong moves in home building. Now, of course, we had a number of hurricanes that took out big swaths of Florida, so we're rebuilding Florida. Uh, But, you know, with people migrating out of the... um, inefficient states, let's call them, the high-tax states, business not very business-friendly states like Illinois and New York, and moving to business-friendly environments, primarily in the South or Tennessee, for example. Um, There's a lot of home building there, so we're seeing a big home building boom as people are replacing their home up North with a home further in the South where they're moving to. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that with any... Uh, inefficiencies we're seeing right now in the supply and demand you have this over over demand um and undersupply you know we're gonna have uh you know companies move to try to fill that and, and equalize that out so uh, yeah. you know the, the issue is is home building isn't an overnight process obviously it takes uh time to build a home and, and you know, get the permits all that stuff so uh it is happening, um and hopefully you know the next couple of years we'll see some of that
1: ease up so chris turning to the economy uh, you have a whole list of different metrics we want to share with everybody. So why don't we start that? Yep. Uh, so uh,
2: some of the numbers that came out, the uh, U.S. producer price index, uh, which is, you know, a lot of people think of the CPI, which is the consumer price index, what what us as consumers are paying. This is uh, similarly that, but you think about that, but like what the restaurant is paying, it's what the producer itself is paying. Um, so the producer price index increased 2.3% year over year in April. Um Easing from March's uh, year-over-year number of 2.7%. So we're seeing a little bit of a slowdown in that producer price index. Uh, the positive uh, with that, I would say, is usually that tends to be kind of the leading indicator to the CPI. Uh, if the kind of restaurants and, and manufacturers, all that stuff are paying a little less, if the inflation is hitting them a little bit, a little, little less, then usually over time it kind of ends and passes on to the consumer. Uh, It's a good sign that maybe we'll continue to see inflation or uh, slow down uh, in the coming months. Uh, No guarantee of that, though. Uh, On top of that, we we saw retail sales rose a seasonally adjusted 0.4% in April after a decline in March. That's positive. We saw a decline in March. We saw a reverse and a positive number in April. So the consumer got out, spent a little bit more, which is positive. Um, most of that spending was on dining out, autos. So we're still seeing a lot of travel occurring. We're seeing a lot of, you know, going out, spending at restaurants, um, you know, kind of splurges, if you will. Um, and I think a lot of that's also, you know, pent up. I mean, we had, if you imagine we had two years dealing with COVID restrictions, things like that. I think there's there's a pent up want and need to travel. I think go we'll out to restaurants, bars, and just relax. Yeah. Consumer spending rose 0.8% in April. Uh, in April, up from a 0.1% increase um, in the February and March. So that was a really positive number. That me, thats a pretty big acceleration. So a month-to-month increase from 0.1% to 0.8% is, is obviously a big jump there. So um, you know what this points to is you know the consumer is still relatively strong. We're seeing consumer spending up as we're entering kind of the late spring, early summer months
1: now. Uh, so that's overall pretty pretty positive for the uh, economy. So um, it's autos and autos and restaurants primarily in the retail consumer spending, retail sales, right? Correct. Yep, autos and autos and uh, restaurants have been the uh, the big drivers
2: of the uh, retail sales. Correct. Um, moving to kind of what we were talking about before, the sales of previously owned homes fell three point four percent in April from March. So that's the month over month number, the year over year number for April was a 23.2% decline in uh, sales or volume, I guess, of, of, of the sales of homes uh, from a year earlier. So a big drop there. That's kind of what we were talking about before. Uh, that volume has decreased significantly as you have homeowners that are locked in at you know 2% interest rate mortgages um, and just don't want to leave. They don't want to subject themselves to uh, a 6% mortgage if they go somewhere else. And, and it's just not there yet, so... Ah, uh, that volume is still very low. Uh, on the reverse side of that, home prices rose in March for the second straight month. So we had a February rise in home prices, and a a March rise now. So the uh, S and P Core Logic, case Schiller National Home Price Index, which is fancy way of saying just the average price of uh, the home in uh, uh, averaged out across America, climbed 0.4 percent uh, in March from February. So we continue to see prices you Know after we had these initial interest rate hikes, we did see the price decline, we did see this start to decline and come back down, uh, as well as volume come down. Uh, and now we've seen that kind of stabilize and, um, yeah, it's starting to move back up slightly. So, it's shown, in, in my opinion, it's shown a little bit more um stabilization than I think was expected, um, with these
1: high interest rates. So, Chris, with with the year-over-year um, unit sales in real estate down twenty-something percent, but yet the uh, revenue for real estate brokerages down thirty-four and fifty percent. That means they're now they're competing harder, maybe cutting commissions, maybe uh, you know changing payouts, that kind of thing. It's more competitive, so that's why it's really affecting the real estate brokerages uh, a lot. Although it's really a kind of a curious thought that the prices aren't going down. But if if this continues, eventually they probably will go down. But in the short run, there's an inventory uh, tightness there that's leaving prices still hanging in there.
2: Yep. Yeah, I mean, you know, eventually it will. And like we talked about, I mean, this is in in many ways a supply and demand issue. Uh, So as home builders put more supply on the market, uh, that will help as well. Um, And then who knows uh, where interest rates will be. Obviously, as interest rates come down, um, you know, that could ease some of this as well um, because home sellers will feel more comfortable, um, you know, being able to list their property, maybe downsize, things like that. Um, they have to mortgage out after, so. Okay. Uh, going on, so uh, the return to work, as Brian spoke about a little bit, um, kind of office real estate has just been getting absolutely pummeled. Uh, most prominently, one of the... Uh, kind of these office real estate um, developers, SL Green, uh, which is uh, a stock, it closed at $25.54 uh, last Friday, which was barely above its 1997 IPO price. Uh, so you can imagine so many gains just wiped out uh, with this recent, um, you know, I would say catastrophe in the um, office real estate market. And, and a lot of this comes as, you know, we had this pandemic, we had a remote work, um, and there's certain areas where, obviously, we've seen more people coming back to the office. Uh, but I think in many ways, it's been more of a hybrid uh, movement there. And, you know, with that, a lot of larger companies may have said, all right, instead of needing four office or four floors of uh, office space, maybe we only need two. Uh, so we've seen this kind of pull back slightly um, for office space. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting, uh, but it definitely is something that's coming Um You know, whether it affects grade A real estate versus grade B or grade C, uh, that remains to be said. Everything we've seen has said that grade A should fare a little bit better, but um, we don't really know. And obviously, it's going to be heavily dependent as well on on the city, the areas. Um, San Francisco, I know, has been one of the hit, the one place that's been hit the hardest uh, because they have heavy tech jobs that can go remote more. Um, and you also had just a huge uh, drive upwards in office real estate prices leading up to the pandemic. So it had the most to fall.
1: Yeah. Well, and Chris, um, we mentioned this in a previous podcast about uh, the uh, major office building in San Francisco uh, that sold for $300 million uh, in 2019 is now trading uh, this uh, quarter for less than $60 million, So down 80%. So there's a big move down in commercial real estate. Uh, because of the pandemic, because of coming back to the offices slow. Uh, And some of those trends, I think, over the next five years will uh, come back to where they were in 2016, 17, 18 uh, over time. But in the short run, they've got to deal with the fact that they don't have a lot of revenue in these buildings. And uh, so there's a, a big downturn. If anybody remembers after the Tax and Economic Recovery Act of 1986, TEFRA, uh, we had a, a real uh, downturn in the commercial real estate market in the 90s, it took almost a decade, uh, and it didn't help, it didn't get healthy until the early 2000s. So it could be that way again in commercial real estate for a while uh, in the major cities. So we'll see. That's a, kind of a, a trend we've seen before, and we'll see how bad it gets. It's obviously in certain areas, San Francisco, very bad, uh, but maybe not as bad in, in, in as many other cities. So uh, we'll keep watching that trend, Chris. But Every time there's uh big problems like that, there's also a huge opportunity. So uh, we will look for opportunities when there's a big anomaly in a market like that.
2: Mm-hmm. No, for sure. Um, and then the last thing I'll mention, um, this is kind of came out of Chevron. Uh, obviously the big uh, oil producers buying a smaller company, PDC energy for 6.3 mm-hmm. billion. Um, and this is, you know, important in many ways. Um, PDC was known for fracking. Uh, they had a big foothold in Colorado, Wyoming, and, and the Permian Basin. So it looks like Chevron is really trying to extend and, and extend that um, its reach and build more of its portfolio in those areas. And mm-hmm. they're trying to take advantage of, you know, the oil market in its current state, which, you know, right now, uh, due to some of the, you know, news out about China being slower than expected, but we've seen um uh, stabilization, if not slight pullback in the oil markets, I think it's, they're seeing as a potential great buy opportunity uh, for five, 10 years from now uh, when we see a full rebound out of that. So yeah, um, it's interesting to see them kind of double down.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Anything else in the economy, Chris, you want to share? That's it. That's about all we got. Okay. Well, good. So um, yeah, so we talked about all these different issues about the economy uh, in the international markets. Um, Also trends that we see affecting the economy is the immigrant populations increasing. Uh, We basically have an open border, although the administration and Mayorkas keep saying the border is closed, I guess officially it is, but they're letting people in and they're not, they're giving them uh, court court dates for the future and many of them won't recover. So the uh, stated policy, even in the campaign for President Biden was to open the border and let people migrate in. Anyone can speculate as to why that's happening. Um, you know, that's obviously gonna hurt employment at some point. It's gonna hurt wage growth. Um, but they have some view and some idea of how they want that to be. Uh, so we'll leave that uh, to your imagination as to what that might be. But right now the border seems to be wide open and the number of immigrants is going up. But among the native born Americans, there's a very tight labor market still. Um, and we're seeing wage wage wages hang in there, still a little bit of wage growth, right, Chris? So so uh, we'll see if, the, if things get tougher in the economy, we'll see that start to crack. We've seen lots of layoffs and that could also lead to uh, declining uh, declining wages and that kind of thing. Talked about the office market already. Uh, we did talk about interest rates and interest rates have been on the rise now and the Fed has gone through 10 interest rate increases anywhere from 75 basis points to as little as 25 basis points. So we moved up to a 5% level and so, of course, uh, as we came into the last interest rate increase, all the predictions were that that would be the last one of what they call the terminal, terminal rate, meaning the, for the high rate. And then usually once they reach a terminal rate, uh, the average is four and a half months later, then the Federal Reserve will start easing and lowering rates again to get the economy going again because in- increasing interest rates slows things down. The Fed needed to cl- slow things down because inflation was out of control. So we saw inflation as high as 9% right now, still about in the sixes. Uh, so it's not it's it's staying persistently high. So why everyone thought that the Fed would not at rate, raise interest rates anymore was kind of perspective. I'm not sure why they thought that, because as I sat here thinking inflation's still high after 10 interest rate increases, this is a perfect setup for another interest rate increase and uh, even, though, even though the markets were betting that it wouldn't, 84% of, of, of observers said that rates were as high as they're going to go, sure enough, uh, St. Louis Fed President James Bullard came out a few days ago and says, I see at least one or maybe two more rate increases. And so that changed the whole perspective. So a month ago, there was an 84% belief that interest rates have stopped rising. And now there's a 60 plus percent chance that interest rates will go up again. So it's all changed. Uh, What we thought a month ago was going to happen is now all different. Uh, But anyway, so that's where we are with interest rates. We'll probably see some small interest rate increases and certainly not decreases for a while until the Fed actually sees inflation waning down to the at least the three percent level. And that may be a number of months before we get there, or even later this year. So I think it's going to be a while before that happens. Um, Anyway, so that's I think what we have in the economy, Chris. with the general what we see out there, let's talk international, let's talk China. You have some comments there as well.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, we got some interesting news out of um China last uh in a couple of weeks ago. Um the we got news that the China's joblessness rate for uh people of age sixteen to twenty-four uh, rose to a record twenty point four percent in April. Um which is pretty astounding when you think about it. That's a very large portion of that population, and we're talking millions upon millions of people. Um, you know, the problem that that we've seen out of this is because China is create, isn't creating enough high-wage, high-skill jobs. We have this younger generation in China that is getting skills, you know, that maybe to work in a office or work, you know, in a different job skill set. And there's just not enough to, of those jobs uh, for them to, um, you know, work at. So, you know, that's been a serious issue, um, you know, and the fact that if this persists, uh, it's going to be a big hamper on the uh, Chinese economy overall. Um, yes. so, so that's been a big issue. And then uh, China's factor activity came out um, and it contracted for the second straight month. It fell to 48.8 in May. Uh, and that's from 49.2 in April. So anything below 50 is contraction. Uh, so not only is it still in contraction, uh, it even moved even further into contraction uh, with this latest uh, May reading. So, you know, two statistics that we've seen kind of come out there, two of the numbers we've seen come out of the, uh, China so far, have really pointed to a, a pretty dull opening. Um, what was anticipated to be a strong opening, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um you know, from China. So it's had a big impact. It, it was definitely one of the reasons uh, we think commodities pull back slightly. Mm-hmm. Uh, China tends to be a big consumer. Uh, and if China, the Chinese economy is going to sputter more, if we're going to not see this big kind of explosion, maybe we're not going to see the Chinese consumer spending as much. Um, you know, we're going to see that, that impact commodities. We're going to see that impact companies. Uh, like we talked about consumer discretionary, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're definitely seeing seeing that ripple effect uh, throughout the global economy and commodities and also, you know, U.S.-based companies. I know, like I said, Gaining, uh, Las Vegas, San, some of those stocks, win. It was has got a big presence in Macau, uh, got hit hard pretty uh, last week. So uh, we're just seeing this kind of readjusting with a lot of these companies to, uh, you know, the certain realization now that the uh, Chinese Uh, reopening isn't as strong as was originally anticipated.
1: Yes. And they're not creating enough jobs, as you said, and they've got a misallocation of resources in China. We're going to cover a little bit more later why we think that is. Uh, But then they also banned some companies too, didn't they, uh, Chris?
2: Yep. So they also came out and banned Micron Technology, which is a semiconductor company. Um, You know, a lot of this has been seen as retaliation for some of the you know, U.S. restrictions on uh, Beijing companies, Hawaii or HTC um, is a great example. TikTok, which has been the news, I believe one of the states just banned it from. Um, maybe yeah, Mon- Montana, Montana, Montana banned it. So, you know, I think this is seen as retaliation. So uh, interesting out of there. And we'll see if that, that continues to escalate, um, you know, this kind of friction between the U.S. and China. Um mm-hmm. Then uh, kind of pivoting now to the uh, European markets, Germany's Q1 GDP numbers came in at negative 0.3%. And that officially puts Germany in a recession. Um, Just for for refresher, they came in at the negative negative 0.5% Q4 2022 uh, number. So uh, two quarters of negative growth is the technical term of a recession. So, um, you know, that puts Germany in a recession. And, you know, that puts a Pretty big damper on the European Union as a whole. Uh, Germany tends to be kind of the the heart of the European Union, and they're the big manufacturers. So the fact that they're in recession uh, does not bode well for for some of the other countries there. Uh, and then the last thing I'll mention is uh, we did see on the positive front a Greek stock third last week uh, after a very unexpectedly easy victory for the uh, ruling conservative
1: party. So um, kind of a nice plus, or positive there that we saw out of Greece. Well, interestingly enough, Chris, we're seeing uh, some changes in governments in Europe. Europe has long been known as a former uh, economic stronghold that uh, became too bureaucratic, uh, you know, too um, um, you know full of regulations and everything else, and and so Europe has been uh, a kind of weak economically relative to the United States for a number of decades now, and uh, now we're seeing. Uh, people unhappy with that in Europe, and now they're electing, they're throwing out the liberal governments and then electing more conservative governments that are going to be tougher on, you know, getting the economy going uh, and, and those kinds of issues. So we saw that in Greece. So this is the second now election for the conservatives in Greece, and they're trying to turn things around there. Um, we saw that happen in Italy. We saw, saw that happen in Denmark. Uh, so um, while it seems like the United States is going more progressive or at least there's people who are pushing hard to get there. Uh, certainly the current president is. Um, you know, The other countries of Europe are going back the other way. So uh, now there was a backlash where the, the conservatives took the House of Representatives in America, but it was expected to be a lot stronger than that. So we really haven't seen a conservative movement in America such like there has been in, uh, in Europe. Uh, so we'll see how that all develops if the public has had enough of Biden economics and the economy that we're in right now. And and if, uh, if in the fall, those elections turn conservative like they did in Europe. So we'll see.
2: Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely been, um, there's definitely been a struggle, if you will. And and it seems to be in Europe, uh, we're seeing more conservatives. We've even seen it kind of in Germany, um, things like that. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting. I mean, just like, just like anything, um, you know, when you have a big dose of, let's say, uh, maybe more liberal ideology for a while, um, tends to kind of get too saturated, and sometimes we have that retaliation or that move back towards maybe more conservatism, more towards the middle.
1: Well, in in a uh, in a change, um, uh, Prime Minister Erdogan was reelected in Turkey. Uh, that's significant because a big crowd of folks in Turkey were wanting change. He's been in office now over 20 years and so there was a big crowd of folks Turks that were looking for big change it was a narrow victory but Erdogan won again uh, and he's been become the strong man of europe essentially uh, very powerful uh, from a more weaker government to a much more stronger government over the last decade um, and so we'll see what those trends look like over time um, so anyway that's uh, i guess that's enough on international we come back to china um, Chris, I was going to say, you know, um, Elon Musk might take Starlink public now. That's another big thing we we're seeing that that could release pressure on Tesla because uh, Elon Musk was selling shares of Tesla, which ran way down to, uh, you know, $100 a share from $400 a share, big move down. I think at one point in the year in 2022, it was down 75% from the high uh, and it ended down 69% for the year and a lot of that was selling stock for Twitter and SpaceX. Now, if he brings uh, that other company public, there may not be as much pressure on Tesla stock going forward because he'll have other capital from Starlink and he'll be able to fund things a different way. So that's an interesting trend. Um, And let me uh, comment also on India. Uh, Prime Minister Modi has, I I say, done it again. Uh, Folks might remember in 2017, Prime Minister Modi trying to clean up corruption in India and turned India into a well-heeled, well-operating capitalistic environment, um, decided in a very quick move over six weeks to remove the 500, or 500 and 1,000 rupee bills from circulation. The reason was, of course, is those were the two largest bills in circulation and there, there was rumored to be significant stores of printed cash in hidden places uh, that were that were uh, um, um, achieved at that level because of corruption, and so by forcing everyone to turn in their five hundred rupee, thousand rupee bills, then they were forcing people to declare where they got all that money. So if you uh, have a modest life and you have a small apartment, and all of a sudden you show up with ten million rupee, they might ask you where you got that, and that's exactly what was going on. So then we saw shuttling back and forth across the border of Pakistan with people moving rupee bills across the border and getting gold the other way and selling the gold. and uh, There were people that died in the desert in 2017 and all these things. Um, my wife and I actually were in India uh, the last week of December 2017 when all this was going on. Uh, watched people standing in line at banks with piles and piles of rupee bills trying to get their rupee bills handed in. So uh, this all was historical. So Modi did it. And then at that time, they created the 2000 rupee bill. It was a new bill. So now Prime Minister Modi has announced that they're going to get rid of the 2000 rupee bill because another number of they believe a number of corrupt players have stepped back into the market. So they're going to try and clean house again. So, as I say, President Modi has done it again or Prime Minister Modi. They also say um, that might be political because there's an election coming up. Uh, So he's looking to uh, gain the uh, gain the favor of the public. Uh, that doesn't like the corruption and of the of the ruling elites in India, so that could be part of it. So um, the interesting story is that because of the foibles of China, with their one-child policy and their and their and their population decreasing, India is now the largest country in the world um, with over a billion people, and China lost eight hundred million, so they say, uh, people, but in reality eight hundred thousand people. Um, in reality, we think it's significantly more than that. We don't usually trust many of the numbers coming out of China. If there are things that are bad, they'll say it's less bad. Things that are good, they'll say it's better than, better than that. Uh, so we see numbers like that all the time. Either way, the official numbers say India is much larger now than China and growing where where China is actually contracting. So we'll see what that develops. Um, there is a writer strike going on in America. The writers want higher wages and restrictions on artificial intelligence, the artificial intelligence, which is the same thing, Chris, that moved that stock of Nvidia and some of the other semiconductor chips uh, companies. um, That is clearly a trend that is, it's a, it's a genie. They may not be able to put back in the bottle. Uh, So artificial intelligence and uh, then chat GPT and all the other aspects of that um, are something that's out there and it's probably not going to change. So, the writers are nervous and they want restrictions put on AI. And so we'll see who wins that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's fear that uh, if you want a certain article written, you can just you know tell your Jet GPT to do it and artificial intelligence will figure all that out and write the article for you, you won't need a writer. And so that's uh, another interesting trend. And everybody remembers the buggy whip ended up leaving when the uh, gas powered car came. Uh, so there are things that change technologically In an economy so if they don't need as many writers those writers will end up doing something else apparently and that's what that's the way the dynamic destruction system works in capitalism Uh, but right now the writers are fighting aren't they yeah yeah i mean i think you know it's
2: it's, if you ever if anyone ever wants to you sign up for a free chat gpt uh account you can type in there you know write me a letter you know saying you know to the president of the united states saying that you want higher wages or something you know, and it will actually write it. So, I mean, some of this is already in existence now, kind of what it can pull and what it will uh, pull from different resources of the internet. So uh, it certainly is a threat and certainly something that is very real and very, you know, here right now, I should say. Obviously, it still needs a a little bit of work, uh, but it's pretty much at our doorstep um, on that front.
1: Yeah. Well, and then the other trend we're seeing, obviously, is America's shrinking cities. New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, all showing weakness in population uh, due to high taxes, high regulations, uh, lockdown policies, and all the other things that went with the pandemic. And those trends are going to uh, more competitive states, lower tax states. It just happens to be that they're mostly, but not all in the South. Uh, We're seeing some movement to Colorado, maybe Idaho, uh, Montana, and other states like that. South Dakota, where there's low taxes uh, and high competition states where where you can actually grow and grow a business and that kind of thing, where it's harder and harder in those other those shrinking cities and the states that go along with it. So that's an interesting trend. We'll see if that changes. And then I wanted to get back to China, Chris, and talk a little bit about that. President Biden has said that we will see a thaw in the China relations after we saw that big uh, that big balloon issue that came across America. They finally shot the balloon down long after it had gone well across our whole nation and taken uh, the military secrets across military bases, and everything else. Uh, Ironically, former Defense Secretary Bob Gates says President Biden has been wrong on pretty much every major policy decision in the last 40 years. So uh, they think that he'll be wrong on this issue, too, that China is not going to thaw. Many think that the reason Biden is saying that is they believe he's compromised. Uh, Congressman James Jordan and uh, James Comer are involved in investigations, and they have uncovered what looks to be massive evidence that there are problems with President Biden, and he is perhaps compromised by China. So we'll see how that plays out. But ironically, the minute um, Biden says that we will see a thaw, then we had a, a massive cyber attacks coming from China targeted toward another, none other than Microsoft. So I don't think China's backing away, Chris, anytime. I don't see a thaw happening. Do you?
2: No, no. I mean, I think that, you know, China's trying to reassert itself or, or assert itself, I should say. Um, the, the, as a play, major player in the, you know global relations, and yeah, you know, I think that's playing out even in uh, with the Russia Ukraine invasion. Obviously, Russia's been a big player. It's actually brought them closer to ties with Russia, closer ties to even India. Um, so you know, there really there's been a little bit of a void there. I think with tensions between the EU, between the US, um, and obviously Russia, and and China certainly kind of stepping into the void. Um, And that's in direct conflict with, you know, what the U.S. wants.
1: Yes. Well, and China has been trying to infiltrate the U.S. for many, many years. Uh, They've now uncovered police stations in the United States. There was one closed with big fanfare uh, in in New York City, but there's still six police stations they know of that have not been shut down where the Chinese government is in our country trying to police its own people and 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 gain certain advantage. Um, Also, uh, China uh, is experiencing at home a plunging economy. China's real estate market is plunging. Steel prices are contracting. Uh, the worsening debt defaults in China. Uh, there were many um, people that had signed up for a new property, but they never got that property delivered because that that city never got populated. So they're they're now fighting back. There's you know three hundred thousand people that own properties that they'll never buy. The Chinese government's going to have to deal with that. That was announced a number of months ago, um, and. You know, there's food shortages. So there's a lot of things happening in China that uh, are are really an offshoot of the uncompetitive, um, you know, government-controlled, communist-controlled government. And those governments don't allocate resources efficiently. So it, it's you know they don't understand what people's desires are. When all individual actors make their own decisions, that's how the market allocates resources, and resource allocates resources through pricing mechanisms. So. Prices go up, people buy less. Prices go down, people buy more. Markets find equilibrium. They don't do that really in China. They, they, they make things through diktat, they tell people what they have to do. So that leads to in allocation of resources. The supply demand curves don't work quite right. And so uh, we're always going to see that. So it's always inefficient. Capitalistic markets are the most efficient way to do that. There's certain abuses in capitalism, obviously, and that's why certain laws are meant to minimize those abuses like antitrust acts and things like that. But um, for the most part, capitalism has created significantly more wealth over a period of time. Um, And certainly in America, it's the American story. So going to war and taking over other countries and meddling other countries is what they really need to do. There's talk now that Japan, as a diversion from their own woes, might be considering going into Japan or in the Philippines or Taiwan, of course, has been talked about, or even uh, starting against the U.S. um, in Guam in the South Pacific. So um, economies that don't grow look to take over others. They don't grow internally. They need to grow by acquisition. And in a government sense, that means starting wars or starting acquisitions. Think Russia. Think China. Russia keeps taking over other countries or trying to. China is doing the same way. It's because their economies don't operate well in, in their own. By doing though, so they extend their influence, they capture more tax base, more resources, it's just fundamentally different way of running a country, but they have to grow to survive. And the way they grow is taking over other countries. Ca- countries like America don't need to take over our countries because we're growing internally. We have the right tax policy, we have the right incentives and everybody works for the, all the good. So um, anyway, all this points to economic growth as the answer America is an economic growth society, four star. We're economic growth people as well. So I just wanted to point that out. That could not be while this is happening with China. And uh, and Gordon Chang, author, thinks that China will eventually uh, collapse over the next decade. So we'll see if that's true. We know they've got many massive problems, including a population decline and aging, a society, one child policy has not worked. And uh, they're America's greatest competitor for sure. So um, anything else, Chris, on your end? No, I think that's it. All right. Well, um, we got a couple of things here before we end it. Uh, the Leadership Matrix blog, which is on the four-star website, fourstarwealth.com, if you scroll down to the blogs of what our advisors saying, in our program, we have a piece about spending and how spending is all in your head. You may create a budget, but many investors, uh, then they don't have their budget in front of them when they're spending money. So then you have to come up with certain heuristics or certain ways and how you feel comfortable spending. And there's some examination of how people do that, that sometimes spending habits have no relation to the budget that they just made. So we have to kind of figure out a way to get those spending habits in line. And there was an interesting study by University of Chicago. It's in an article that's in our blog. Um, And those who want to get on our mailing list are able to, by just going on to fourstarwealth.com, the leadership matrix, entering your Uh, email and we'll continue, uh, add you into the blog or call us and we'll add your email in. Uh, We also had a piece, another piece, probably the final piece about the visit that I personally had with Captain James Lovell of Apollo 13. He was the captain of Apollo 13, which was a failed mission. And they were expected to die out there in space and not make it back to America. Um, I was part of a contingent from the Boy Scouts of America and the National Eagle Scout Association to present Captain James Lovell with the distinguished Eagle Award. He's uh, in his in his mid nineties, living in a in a um, uh, senior home in Lake Forest, Illinois. We met his wife Marilyn uh, when Marilyn, when he was on the far side of the moon. They were one of the only um, uh, moon missions to go to the far side of the moon. Uh, he named a mountain after his wife, Mount Marilyn. If you look that up on the website, you'll see Mount Marilyn. We met Marilyn. She's also she was in a wheelchair in her mid nineties. Uh, she was there with her husband, Captain Jim Lovell. He's been a very avid Eagle Scout. Most of the uh, astronauts on the NASA program have been Eagle Scouts, most, not all, I think about 80% of them. So we got to meet Captain James Lovell. It was a great experience. And we play music from Pink Floyd about the dark side of the moon. right? So uh, anyway, that's all on our website as well. And then also we have a podcast interview with uh, Dominic Vaccaro and Jack Cassidy of Burlington Capital. We talk a lot about investing in stocks and bonds and other financial assets. But we also do a lot of work in alternative investing. And uh, the Burlington Capital folks are folks that offer programs in multifamily housing. We have a, a, a broad list of different multifamily programs. They're an interesting group out of Omaha, Burlington Capital. So we wanted to interview them and talk a little bit about that space. And if anybody's interested in investing in alternative investments, you can talk to myself or Chris, or your financial advisor at four star. And we'll be happy to talk to you about ways you can invest in those areas, but enjoy the visit with the Burlington capital guys. Uh, They're very interesting characters and, and uh, might be worth your while. So Chris, why don't we leave it there? Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks everybody for uh, the four star advisors. And now we're growing, we're crossing the billion asset mark here uh, this quarter. Uh, We have 33 advisors in 14 States and, a staff of 12 people across the country. So for our whole great four-star team, uh, for Chris Reardon and all the other folks who are involved with the four-star operation, uh, we want to thank you. Uh, We will be back with another episode very shortly of Today's Market Explained, and we'll leave it there, folks. Uh, Let's uh, have a great day, and we'll see you at the next episode. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way you can support us is to leave a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you heard something here that someone else you know will find value from, please share the episode directly with them. Want us to answer your investing question directly on the next episode? Go to todaysmarketexplained.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom and submit your question please follow at Today's Market Explained on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube to see the best moment video clips from every episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and keep on growing out there, everyone.